everyone, and welcome to this conversation presented by White House Custom Color. I'm Jed Toffer. Thanks for listening. You know, my wife Vicki and I have owned and operated our photography studio, V Gallery, for 20 years now. White House has been our lab for the last 16 of those years, and we could not be happier. White House is a family-run business, just like ours. If you haven't already, check them out at whcc.com. And if you want to drop me a line, feel free to email me at jed at whcc.com. You know those conversations where you start off going down one path and it turns into something you never saw coming? Brooke Shaden and I sat together again to talk about what is weird. We also wanted to cover the concept of selling out and some other things. And we did that. But with Brooke, you always get more than you bargain for. She's very adept at under-promising and over-delivering. She's also wise beyond her years. An old soul, so to speak. And for me, that means she always has something new for me to learn. So yeah, we discussed the concept of what weird is, among many other things. And as happened many times before, I walk away with some fresh perspectives. I think you will too. Stay home, friends. And stay safe. This too shall pass. So, fair enough that you have people, right? Yeah. Who are your people? Curious people who want to dig deeper for their art and themselves. Where do you find those people? Like, if you're going to go to a... We're at WPPI, but if you're going to go to a thing, Mm -hmm. where are those people? Where are your people at? I try to be as loud as I can about who I am so that they find me. (laughs) So your people come to you. Yeah. You don't have a place in mind where you go and find them. No. They come to you. Yeah. Well, I I think that, you know, like weird is attracted to weird. So when you're weird enough and loud enough about it, then people find that pretty easily there's going to be some tangents here today (laughs) when when you say things it makes me want to what's weird honestly i think that weird is authentic i just think that it's it's something because being authentic is so weird it is like following your true curiosity is weird Most people don't do that because we get into some very specific way of working or thinking or creating, and then you have to do that to make a living, and then you don't do anything else because you feel stuck just like any job. So it's weirder to follow your true curiosity than to not. As opposed to going with the flow, so to speak, or Mm -hmm. like doing what what it is that you think society or your your group or your culture or your tribe or wherever you happen to be located. Yeah. Whatever they think is normal. Right. Because like the number one thing that I hear at workshops that I teach, for example, are people saying, I would love to do this, but, and there's always that but, and and that's the track that they go down most of the time is like, but I have to make a living or but this won't sell or but I can't do this. And so the people who actually do it are the weird ones, the minority group who okay, who take now a I'm, chance. Now I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit. Mm-hmm. If it's society or whatever the culture or whatever the group that they're a part of determines the norm does that not generally justify their fears and that that's also going to determine what sells yes i completely agree so their fears justified 
in a sense. But I think that we are too quick to assume that we need the masses to support us, but we don't. Oh, yeah. You know, like okay. I have a very small group of people who support right. me, but they really support me. Right. I read just this. Now, this made me think of something else related to this. Just the other day, and when I say that, it's probably two months. Mm -hmm. So two or three months ago, I read an article that said you need a thousand people. A thousand. To do a, what? To succeed and to be supported. Like, um, I think this was for like YouTube. Okay. Um, um, or maybe it wasn't even for YouTube. It was for, I think it was for what you're talking about. Like people that are going to support you. Now that means right. financially, if you're selling something, if you have something to sell or something to offer, you don't need thousands and thousands and thousands. You need 1,000 people in your client base, so to speak. Interesting. Because I think a lot, and maybe this goes back to what you were saying, is that I think a lot of people think, well, in order to be successful, I'm going to need all these people to love me. Like everyone's going to have to want what I offer. Yeah. But you don't need that. No. You need a, you need a, and they put a number on it. They put a thousand people on it. Yeah. Like over, over the course of time. Right. And I, I would guess that depending on what it is that you're offering, maybe you even need less than that. Yeah. And, and I'm also curious, in my experience at least, the more people who hate what I do really fuel the people who love what I do, you know? So it's like the more controversy controversy there is, like the people who really love it are much more inclined to love it even more because it's like there's this feeling of I'm going against the grain or like I need to stand up for this art or this person. And so I find that even like I do a lot of things that are controversial in a lot of ways and I like hear what? from people. Just tell me what. Well... You know, years ago, actually, I talked to you about this death series that I'm creating. You, you did? I, yeah. And because you were like my go-to person oh. of how will the public respond. Okay. And <laughs> and you were correct. I mean, you you had well. a response that was that echoed what a lot of people feel, which uh -huh. is, you know, like maybe you shouldn't be um, like taking pictures with dead animals and maybe you shouldn't be, you know, using, you know, human remains. To... Real, real stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Like and metamor metaphorically, I didn't, I didn't no. have a problem with, <laughs> no. the, with the metaphor. No, it was death the... is actually something that's really important to, to talk about. Yeah. And to, and to convey through your art. Right. But the real stuff is what what was getting to me. Yes, exactly. And at that's the same what gets time, though, in my defense, because mm -hmm. I'm I feel as though I need to defend myself. Defend yourself right now. Yeah. Um, I respect your. I feel like I respect your desire for here. Here's the word again: authenticity. Mm -hmm. Isn't that kind of where you were coming from? Yes, and that's why I asked your opinion in the first place because mm -hmm. I knew that you would respect me no matter what. Oh well, <laughs> I do. Yes. But that's the piece that I that that I heard when you, when you were asking me about it initially is that you felt as though, considering how important the subject was, mm -hmm. that the authenticity yes be there yes. and you wanted to remain true to that yeah exactly and you did that and you got some flack just a little though that's the oh, thing not bad no not bad and I almost feel like um part of me just wants to create controversy now because I can't. I was going to ask you that. Which is not a good thing to admit. Like, I'm not proud that I want to do that. But at the same time, I started my career with a lot of controversial images. And you people did. were really upset about it. And 
I haven't been able to do that since then. I kind of feel like the internet as a whole has just softened. Like people aren't as upset about the same stuff that they were 10 years ago when I started creating. Well, yeah, what does that mean? Softened? Yeah. Like... You or can, they've become jaded. I you don't can know. get away with more. Yeah, Is yeah. That... Because I wasn't doing anything crazy when I started photography. I was right. just playing dead in different places, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> and and I was amazed at how people really were upset by that. Yeah. And I do the same thing now, but nobody yeah. says anything about it. It's like, oh, yeah. okay, like we get it. We've seen that. <laughs> but but the piece that the part that you say like you want controversy. Is that because that's what gives you recognition? Well, it's mostly because I want to make people feel strongly. And it's Mm. frustrating when you're trying so hard to make things that really say something about the world and about humanity. And then it just washes right over people. You're in a war against apathy. Yes, completely. You are fighting apathy. I like that. I think apathy is the worst. Mm -hmm. I really do. It is. It is, and and it's frustrating because what I want to do with my art is get people to dig down past that and figure out if they can understand a deeper part of themselves, but most people are just not willing to do that. Well, you're not really looking for controversy as much as you're fine with controversy as long as it comes with real emotion. Yes, exactly, and that's why controversy is the wrong word. I'm just looking for a real experience from people. A a real reaction, something genuine. Exactly. Even if it's... Um, not happy. <laughs> yeah, which I honestly love. I, I I find a lot of value in negative opinions about my work because I I'm very much of the opinion that once you've created something and you've put it out there in the world, it's not yours anymore. Like it belongs hmm. to everybody. And so I think that any opinion, good or bad, elevates the art in some way. And I find it more and more difficult to get those reactions from people. But when someone's unhappy, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a it's a it's a bad opinion too, right? Like if you create something that upsets me, mm-hmm. I've seen things that you've created that upset me. Yeah. Um. And and I don't mean a, a, offense. Mm-hmm. I'm so I'm trying to pick my words carefully here. But you create something, and I look at it, and I feel, well, what could I feel? Afraid or angry? or confused, mm-hmm. all those, or a combination of those things. That doesn't necessarily mean that my reaction to it is a bad one. Right. Um, I could treat you bad, mm-hmm. even if I looked at something you made and felt good about it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, but, but what you're wanting is just that the genuine, whatever it is that somebody really feels. Yeah. And, and the worst thing is that if someone doesn't feel anything or doesn't care. It's the worst. Right. And I think most people agree with that. Like most people who are sharing their work online or anywhere, the worst thing that they hear is silence. And Mm. all they want is for somebody to just say something to know that it's been seen by Mm. somebody. But you know, I had a really great full circle moment recently in regard to people having negative opinions about my work. Cause maybe like five years ago, somebody wrote to me. You mean like an, and so this is a negative opinion yeah. And they're not just like feeling an, an emotion that's, you know, anger well, or, or fear, but they're, they're upset at you. Yes. They were upset with me and they wrote right. me an email saying, I'm upset that you created this. I don't think this should be out there in the mm. world, that kind of thing. And, and I didn't think much of it because those opinions, 
it's like, okay, well, I did it and it's there and, <laughs> you know, and I feel okay about that. So, so I kind of let it go. It didn't really matter. But then three years later, this guy stayed after a lecture I gave and came up to me at the end of the lecture and he said, I just need to apologize because I wrote you a horrible email three years ago. It was the guy. It was the guy. And he said, I was just going through an awful time in my life and I couldn't understand why you would create this art. But since then, it's actually helped me heal from that experience. And so that was like the most amazing validating thing. And it reminded me that even if somebody has a negative opinion about me or my work, that doesn't mean that later on that will change. So it's good to remember that. But see there, you bring it up, you bring up another really good point that I think is interesting. There's a huge difference between someone having a negative opinion about your work and someone having a negative opinion about you, in my opinion. And I struggle desperately with that. Well, here's the, here's the rub. Your work is so, so much a big part of who you are, right? But it's not who you are. Right. It's not, it's not you. Mm -hmm. It's your work. Mm -hmm. And yet it is, I mean, you, you are really putting yourself out there through your work. So how do you reconcile that? How do you, like, I'm just coming to terms with this myself right now. If somebody's Mm -hmm. upset about something that you created, does it not follow that then they could be upset with you as a person. Right. Well, here's the thing is that I create from a very pulled back analytical standpoint. So when I'm feeling an emotion, I don't create in that moment from that emotion ever. Like I'm not creating any autobiographical works where I'm feeling the distress of the moment and then I make something from that. So I always wait until I've analyzed the situation and I understand how I feel about it and I've really looked at all sides so that when I put that work out there, I've already gone through that hard work of figuring out how I feel about it from that pulled back vantage point. And that helps so much when people have negative opinions about it. You don't ever it. just fly by the seat of your pants and if you're angry about something, just make something that... No. That, really? No, I lay on my couch and I watch Doctor Who and then <laughs> I wait until I feel better about it. Honestly, it's just not the way that I work. You are an analytical person. I'm very analytical. And it's it's I'm also very emotional. That's the thing is right. that I feel a lot, but I don't feel compelled to create because I understand that I don't understand yet what I'm feeling Mm -hmm. totally. And I I like to understand that. So you wait. I always wait. Yeah. And you know, the one time that I didn't was when I started this series about death and grief and I was in the cycle of grief that I wanted to get out of. And Mm. I thought this feels important. I should make something about this. Mm. And I started and for a year and a half, I couldn't make anything. I just kept trying and trying and everything failed and I hated everything that I made. Mm. And it wasn't until I finally felt like I was out of that cycle of grief that I understood it. And then I started the series all over again and it was beautiful. So that's how I work. what about when you make something that you hate that other people love or do they just not see that stuff? Do you not? Do they you don't not... really see that. But you know, but the other thing is that I release a lot of stuff that I'm not totally convinced about. Mm-hmm. So it's not that I hate it or right. whatever, but it's that I'm, I'm not convinced it's my best work, but I'm yeah. also not striving to create my best work all the time. Most people are on this mission to always produce amazing stuff and I'm not. Like, I just want to produce stuff because it's fun. And if people want to see that, great. And Is it a quantity over quality thing? Or is it you just always want to be creating and, yeah, and realize that it. you can't always be at the top of your game? Yeah, or? well, the, the thought process is I enjoyed making this thing. And even if it's not the best, I'd rather release that and just say this isn't my best and that I'm aware of that and mm. then inspire other people to create even if it's not their oh. best. 
I feel like that's way more valuable than just always showing all the perfect stuff that I make and then trying to act like that's all I do. So is that what you want from, okay, we'll go back to your people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I'll use the word weird again, meaning that it's just not, it's based on uh, what being curious, right? Yes. And so is that what you want for your people, so to speak? Yes. You want them, you want them to create and be okay with thinking that's, this isn't my best work. Yes. Because I think that translates into all parts of your life. Like, isn't it better to just try something, even if you're not going to succeed and know that you've made a step forward in that regard. Hmm. And and I think, especially with art, we have this idea of perfectionism around it, where it has to be perfect and every detail has to be great. And it's almost like you've made something, now there's no opportunity to make it again. Like, that's it, you've done it, it has to be great. But we have infinite opportunities to just try again if it doesn't mm. work out. And why do we hide that from the public? Like, why is it that we feel like we can't share that as well? It's equally, if not a way larger part You're of like the process. You're like sharing the process, mm-hmm. even. Yeah. And I think that's really valuable. And I'm not saying if people don't share that, that makes them bad. But <laughs> I mean, that's not my point right. at all. But right. but my mission in life, like what I want my legacy to be is to inspire people to create, to get themselves out of any darkness that they feel and to be able to express that. And I feel like I try to do that with my work. And I have in part succeeded at helping people through dark times just by looking at what I've done. But I want them then to take that next step to do it for themselves and then therefore continue to inspire others. You want to help people to come out of darkness. Mm -hmm. But I thought you liked darkness. I love it. Okay, I want people... I want people to understand it. I don't need them to necessarily like leave it behind. I just want people to come to a greater acceptance of darkness. Okay, see, you're... This is this is the thing. This this conversation is like a three year conversation between yes. you and me. Yes, it is. I'm really longer. I would argue. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> sure. Well, probably, yeah. Um, someday you're gonna have to help me understand that a little bit more. I think. But in in the meantime, I want to. I do want to stay on this topic because you posted something about masks, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And this what how this happened initially is that you were talking about selling out. Yes. And I and and you've been talking about identity. Mm-hmm. The, I want to dive in. I want to take a deeper dive into all of that. Yes. So start with the selling out piece for for now. I've always had a really weird um, relationship with this idea of selling out because when I started my career, I wanted to be a really serious artist. And so the hmm. idea of selling out was like, oh, I won't do this. I won't do that. I can't be seen as somebody who just wants to make money through my art. That's what selling out is. Which is not really the actual definition of selling out, but well, I think that's yeah. how we see it. I'm asking more than anything. From a jealous standpoint a lot of the mm. time. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, the real definition is somebody who compromises their morality or their ethics okay. in order to make money or profit right. somehow. But the way that we see it as artists is, oh, well, that artist is out, like, they moved to Hollywood and they're doing all this stuff Someone and they're making so much money. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And and so my point right. is not that, it, I'm not trying to redefine selling out. I'm trying right. to say that we as a society see it in the wrong way a lot of the times. We right. use it in the wrong way. Well, and you, I think you just mentioned this, but that's fueled by envy. Right. Isn't it? Yes. And I really think it is. And for me, it certainly was. I really struggled with jealousy a lot when I started my career. And I had a hard time looking at other artists and 
trying to reconcile where I was in my career versus where other people were, which I think is very normal, but I recognized it was very unhealthy. And I started to assign this term sellout to people that were successful because I wasn't successful. And I see this happening all the time in our industry. You were bitter. I was bitter. Yeah. So you don't struggle with that anymore? No. And I, I've, worked for a long time not to because it was a huge part of my identity. I mean, I would have said I'm a very jealous person and I always was my whole life. Yeah. And there, it's not like there aren't times where I have envy and I wish that I I could be that person (laughs) or something. But for the most part, I'm really happy to watch people succeed. And I recognize that I'm not going to start failing because they're succeeding. But how much of that is also because you are in a sense, and you can debate me on this one, but how much of it is because, in a sense, you're on the other side of success now? I don't know. And mm, I think that's about an this honest all answer. the time. That's an honest answer. Yeah, it is. And I, I've i really thought, especially even since you reached out about this topic, I've been yeah. thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Because I don't know. It's hard to say like when that switch happens, like when you feel like you're on the other side of success and then suddenly you feel like you can't be brought down because of that. I don't, mm. I don't know. And I don't even have an answer to that. Mm. So it's a tough question. Well, <laughs> that's, that's what goes through my mind because I, I'm always stunned by really wealthy people that tell people that aren't really wealthy all kinds of advice Yes. about how you know, like money advice. Now that's not to say that they don't have, a, you know, valid points, right. right? But when they're talking about fear and when they're talking about, you know, all these different things that from a financial standpoint, they shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you're a billionaire and you're worried about money, maybe there's like a psychosis type of yes. thing going on there. But to for you to go to somebody that's, you know, struggling on, you know, f- $6 an hour or $12 an hour or wherever, you know, someone like a single mother that's really struggling and, and you're giving them advice about fear and money. Yes. Well, that's really easy for you to say. Yes. Do you know what I'm saying? I completely know what you're saying. Yeah. And so for you to be successful and then say, well, I don't struggle with the bitterness or the jealousy right. anymore. Right. Doesn't yeah. that fit? Well, of course you don't because you're there. Yes. You made it. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's, it is a very difficult thing to reconcile. And I know that in my journey, I started, I recognized my jealousy right away. And I said, I can't act like this toward other people because it's bringing me down and it's not helping me at all. Um, and I started to try to change it before I would argue that I had any success at all. And I don't know how successful I was because I can't remember how I was feeling that long ago. But at the same time, I think there is a lot of good in accepting people wherever they are Mm -hmm. and recognizing that we can probably be mutually beneficial to one another. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it honestly helps me to be selfish in those moments and say, well, that person can help me just like I can help them. And so it helps you to not feel bitter toward that person so much. I understand that piece. So in regards to the selling out piece, Mm -hmm. you don't look at it the same as you used to? I don't look at it the same because I used to see anybody who made a lot of money as as, a sellout. sellout. And I think a lot of people do. And when I shared that on my social media sites, Mm -hmm. 
I got a lot of messages from people saying, well, that's easy for you to say because oh, you you're did. a sellout, you, you know? Really? Yeah. And, you know, and people saying, well, you're sponsored by Sony. Doesn't that oh. make you a sellout? Well, you work with brands, so right. aren't you a sellout? Right. And it was, a, it was just a really interesting conversation because they were clearly coming at it from that standpoint of, you're successful, so you're a sellout. And I was trying to make this point of like, we need to stop using that word in this way because I haven't compromised my morals for the things that I have. Well, in that sense, it's a pretty big claim then. I mean, you're really making a pretty powerful judgment if you look at somebody and say, you're a sellout. Right. That doesn't mean that you're wrong. Right. Because maybe maybe they are. Yeah. But the point is, there's a lot of weight behind that. Claim. There is a lot of weight, and it is in. I think that it's in part why the starving artist mentality is still around because mm. we expect artists to be humble and to have to work really hard for everything that they have, and you mm. can't have brand affiliations and you can't have you know like the corporations behind you if you're making authentic art. It's like those two things can't happen at the same time. Right. And especially in the fine art world, it's a huge issue with people thinking that. And, right. And I just think that's that's the reason why artists feel like they can't make money, and that's why we have such a negative money mindset in the fine art world because of that. In the in the fine art world, though, are the, is the buying public that way? Are the are the are the people that purchase fine art looking for somebody that shows up in rags? You know, I don't know that, but I think that what they're looking for is somebody who is so wrapped up in their own creative process that they don't have time for companies. You know what I mean? Like there's this, even well, they don't have to be poor. They don't have to be in rags. But I think that there's this romantic sense of like an artist who slaves away in a warehouse all day, just like making art. And they're so invested in that. And right. I'm, well, maybe a corporation bought that warehouse. Well, exactly. <laughs> and that's the thing is it sometimes it's all about posturing and just making yes. it look like that's what you're doing and but every single successful artist I know has money behind them whether it's from I don't know like massive success of their own art or companies behind them or something I don't know one single person who's successful without that isn't that part of the game I mean isn't the part of the game and I don't mean the game in, in art I mean the game of life you have to you have to have money to do things. Yeah, and people are always saying artists are so bad at business because so many artists mm-hmm. repel that idea. Sure. But I love that idea. I mean, I'm like, I am just as creative when I'm writing a proposal for a grant as I am making yes. art. And I think it's it's the reason why I found any success because I love the business side of things. I love it. I think it's fascinating. Creativity in business. Mm-hmm. Heck yes. Yeah. And I mean, I've seen so many people teaching business classes that are all about, here's how you do pricing and here's how you make sales and stuff like that. And that's great. But what if we could really get behind the creativity of business and Mm. figure out how from the ground up, from the inside out, we can make a business that is sustainable and fulfilling and creative. That's what creates success in the long run. I spoke to somebody a few months ago and and on the podcast, he talked about, um, we're, we're creative in all kinds of things that we do. He's and and he said a lot of times we're not even thinking about it. Yeah. Like he said you can you can be creative when you're making a spreadsheet. Right. And it kind of blew my mind a little. Yeah. Because I, I don't I don't make that association. You know, certainly not off the top of my head. Yeah. But he's absolutely right, and mm-hmm. it's what it's what I'm hearing you say right now too. Yes, I love every part of my business except for taxes, <laughs> which I think is fair. 
I feel like I haven't quite gotten the creativity well, some, there. But. Some people choose to be creative with their taxes, too. True. <laughs> maybe I'm just not trying hard Yeah, enough. well, maybe Well, <laughs> maybe it's because you you have morals and ethics and <laughs> scruples and everything else that prevents you from being creative with your taxes. The other piece I wanted to uh, touch on that kind of you know lines up with this is the masks piece. Because mm-hmm. you just had a post on masks that yeah. I noticed, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like, all right, let me ask it this way. Is wearing a mask always a bad thing? No, I don't think so. I'm, uh, masks and identity is, it's so interesting because we think of identity as one thing. Like we are this identity, but we're not. We're constantly morphing into some other identity well, that w- which will then morph into something else. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we try on different identities and figure out who we are is part of who we are. That I mean, that's part of this many multifaceted force of being. And and I think that the, there's there's an idea that if you're being somebody that you're not authentically, you know, who, who that person is, that you're doing something wrong, when really you're just trying to figure out who you are. And mm-hmm. it's constant. We will never know. It's not like our, our face mask will finally settle into some form and that's who we're going to be. It's like that <laughs> right. doesn't happen. Right. So, yeah, so I think it's, it's interest, an interesting conversation because identity is not a, a singular thing that we're trying to attain. Identity is not a singular thing. All right, help me out a little bit with what you're saying. It's it's sort of like 10 years ago, I wanted to be a photographer. Yes. And I was convinced of that. Right. And, and I tried so hard at that, and I told everybody that I was a photographer. And now I completely reject <laughs> that title because you I do. don't... Yeah, I don't feel like I'm a photographer okay. anymore. Yes, I use a camera, fine. But but i've realized that the my heart is not in that mm-hmm. art form it's it's in art in general sure but um and so that's a mask that i wore for a long time really trying to fit into that until i realized that i've really moved out of that phase of my life largely and and i think that it's so important for people to find that mask like that job title or that adjective that really describes who they are and then stick with that but that's in my opinion, the way that we create narratives about ourselves that are unhealthy, that trap us in the past instead of letting us move forward into the future. And a lot of those narratives are very unhealthy for people. Like I, I grew up thinking that I was really dumb. Like I always thought that I was, I was really bad at school. I didn't get into any good colleges. I, I tried so hard and just couldn't succeed. And, and so my identity was wrapped up in stupidity and I would make jokes about it all the time. Like I'm so dumb. I'm so dumb. And by saying that all the time and making a joke out of it, that was my identity for a really long time. And I couldn't see myself in any other way. So we often we go through these phases of wearing these masks that we hold on to so tightly because that's who we've always been and it's scary not to, but we need to learn that, well, that, that identity, that mask, whatever will continue to change and we can grow out of it and that's okay. How did you learn that with the stupidity thing? It was actually an amazing moment that really solidified it for me. I was on stage giving a lecture one time and I did something like I, tripped over a cord or something and I said I'm so stupid and I and it was just like a moment I passed oh, you it. said it I said it yeah. but I was 
in my mind, I was just being silly, like, yeah. you know, just entertaining the crowd or whatever. Yeah. And um, and I got off stage and, and this brilliant photographer named Katrine Eisman, yeah. she pulled me aside and she really got in my face and she was like, you told that whole crowd that you're stupid and if you tell them something, they're going to believe you. So never say that again. Oh. And it was like this moment of, oh my gosh, I didn't even think about it. It was so part of just the joke right. of myself that I just right. said it. And it... I never said it again after that. I, I, I catch myself now. Every time I want to say, oh, that was dumb, or I did something stupid, I think, no, no, no. That was just a moment that I had, and now I'm going to move on from it. And That's sobering. Like, she got... Yeah, it was an amazing moment, and right. we all need that. But, right. but most people don't have the guts to say that to somebody. Like, sure, there's that piece. Yeah, it's right. difficult to go up to someone and say, don't say that you're fat. You're not. Like, that's, right. that's a story you're telling yourself, and it's right. hard to say that to people. Right. But I wish more people would because <laughs> it was an amazing moment. It worked. Yeah. And so now, honestly, I get in front of crowds and I tell them how incredibly intelligent I am. And I do it all the time now. And it's really affirming. And then, of course, they see me that way if I say it. So where's the line between that and bragging? I think that the line is understanding where your strengths are and understanding where your weaknesses are and I mean, I can tell you that I'm not good at school. Mm -hmm. And that's a fact. That's not my opinion. I almost failed school. You're not so, putting yourself down. No, I'm right. not. And so the difference is I can say I am really intelligent in business. I really understand concepts and symbolism and art. I'm mm -hmm. really good at those things. Mm -hmm. I am not so good at taking tests and mm -hmm. learning different skills and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But I understand the difference. And I'm not saying I am stupid. I'm saying I just happen to not be good at that thing, but I'm great at other things. And mm -hmm. it's good to make that differentiation when so when keeping all that in mind when is wearing a mask not helpful or when is it bad or when is it think, when should you take the mask off i think <laughs> the moment you recognize it as a mask mm. is the moment that it shouldn't be there anymore I, I mean the moment that you you have that sense that i am an, inhabiting a persona that really doesn't align with my values then you have to let it go well and that's that's kind of during that usually occurs what during the whole transition of identity in the first place like i'm trying to be this person yeah or i'm trying to be this way right and it's not working mm -hmm. because it's not really me yeah and so you you come out of that then mm -hmm. and sometimes people get stuck there yes and they keep trying to be someone or do something that's not really them yeah and you're saying come out of that yeah let it go and that's the the difficult part and it's hard because we don't think about it like this like we're having a conversation about identity that most people will never have right <laughs> like most people don't just sit around pondering their identity it's a, it's a weird thing to do right but if more people could get in that habit of just periodically saying what stories have i been telling about myself mm. that are unhealthy for mm. me and how can i move out of that then a lot more people would become aware of the ways that they're not serving themselves don't you need help I mean, isn't it good to have help? Yes, it's always good to I have I mean, help. if you get stuck, like, because I think that people think about it certainly more than they talk about it, which is kind of what you're saying. But I think people think about it a lot, but they don't talk about it very much. Like, who am I? Or, you know, is is this really me? Or what? I, I just remember when when my wife's business, well, she became a mom for one thing. Yeah. And then she didn't, she wanted to put more time into being a mom. Mm-hmm. And so when she did that, 
she was putting less time into her business and it, and her, her business wasn't the same. Yeah. And that was really hard for her for a while. Yeah. And then she realized, but I'm a mom. Yeah. And I want to be a mom more than I want to be this business huge person in, in photography and stuff yeah. like that. And that was tough for her. It was, it was what was happening and it is what she wanted. And it was still hard because in a way she was kind of saying goodbye yeah. to that person yeah. that she always was. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. And I'm completely obsessed with the idea of grieving for yourself and learning yes. how to go through cycles of grief. It was grief. Yourself. Yeah, it is. I know because I am also going through that right now. I just yeah. became a mom and I am completely lost in my identity, but I know that and I'm actively grieving that. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Well, I, I became a foster mother two months ago and, and I think that no matter what anybody tells you, you're always going to have your own experience of what that's like. Yes. Parenthood or, or any big Thank change. you. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I, being the analytical person that I am, knew this change was coming. So yeah. I batch created six months of content so that I would have four things to put out on the internet per week for six months. Mm-hmm. And even in that, even in being so prepared and feeling like my business is just going to keep sailing, mm. I, I'm shocked at how how lost I feel in my own identity when I can't just sit down at my computer and work or get an idea out. And that has been massively frustrating because my business and my largely my identity has been built on this spontaneous creativity. And that's what right. people know me for is because for you just could. doing it. Because you could. Because I could, yeah. And now you can't. And now I can definitely not. Certainly not in the same way. No. By any means. Yeah. I've, I've found that when you're out on a photo shoot, and you're trying to like play dead in a field. It's very hard when you have a two-year-old running into the street. You know, it's like, it's yeah. amazing. So um, yeah, things have been stifled for sure. And, uh, and it's been a tough challenge. But at the same time, the benefit of understanding that you're in a cycle of grief is that you can also look forward and figure out how to get out of that a lot easier if you're aware of it. And so I'm already thinking about, well, how can I use this to my benefit? Like, it's a funny thing that I am trying to play dead while my two-year-old is running toward (laughs) the street, right? It's funny. Don't worry, he's not in harm. Um, (laughs) It's funny. want to get those emails. And it's interesting, and people will relate to that. And so I know that. And so I'm already thinking, well, my old persona has to die because my life is different now. But Mm -hmm. I can transition that spirit that I had into new stories and new ways of existing, and that's equally good. So I'm really working on that right now. I understand that you have the grief on one end. Um, Talk a little bit about the joy on the other end. It's, um, it's, it's been a really funny balance for me of that because to be honest, this whole journey into fostering has been not what I expected. Mm. And I've had a lot of conversations with my husband about this, about expectation versus reality and what Mm. you think is going to happen Mm. versus what really is occurring in your house. And I think that part of 
Like, I know you just said talk about the joy, and now I'm talking about something entirely else. Joy doesn't mean happiness, though. No, it doesn't. So I'm not asking you to talk about the happy stuff. Right. And and I guess that's my point, which is that we've had these conversations about expectation. Mm. And in those conversations, I've recognized what I wanted out of this experience versus what I have. And having to very intentionally say, I won't give this up because... I'm learning so much about myself and about the world by going through this experience mm. that that's its own type of joy for me. It's, it's, it, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. That. It's, it's not, you know, it, I wake up every day and I'm not wildly happy and I have really hard days. I mean, I have a two year old with a lot of trauma issues, yes. so it's difficult. Right. And there are so many moments where I think like I did this to myself mm. and I did this willingly and it's awful and I hate my life right in this mm. moment. Mm-hmm. But then when I come out of that, I think, but I'm helping this child so much. And mm-hmm. I know that. And there are moments of extreme happiness that mm-hmm. I'm ha- having in my house. And I get to learn from this. And then even if nothing else comes of my journey as a parent, I'm going to create amazing art from that. Mm-hmm. So that's also really awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, you, and, and do you have a sense that you, it's to some degree that your joy is going to be retrospective? In so many ways. Yes. And I, I think that, like, all, you know, people always say, like, look at that time in your life. You didn't even know it, but those were the best right. years. Right. And I always feel right. that every day I think that right. to myself, like, right. okay, okay, he's had a tantrum for an hour yes. and I'm freaking out. But, like, I also get to hug him during that moment. Yes. And I'm going to miss that so much when he gets reunited with his biological family. Yes. And so there, I'm having a lot of moments where I think, don't worry. In a year, I'm going to really miss this. <laughs> well, you will. There's no question. How do you handle that inevitability coming up? It's it's really challenging, and it's also not challenging. So, like, it, when I started, everybody said to me, you're going to get so attached to that child, and you're yeah. not going to want to give him up. Right. And I actually found my attachment to be very slow, and I just hated myself more than anything for weeks when I started fostering. Is that right? Because I didn't feel an attachment. I didn't feel anything. Uh I just felt like there's a stranger in my house and I don't know how to take care of him. And it's really frustrating. And I didn't feel that. And I think that like the stigma around any parent really, and especially motherhood is that you'll just feel this unending, undying love for your child. And I did not feel that way. And I think that part of it is knowing that he'll go back to his family. So there's just a built-in resistance for me of Mm. like, I know I'm going to lose this child. And then, but there are other moments where I just think I can never give this child up. Like, how am I going to send him back to his family? And I don't know. It's just really hard. And I've, I haven't, analyzed my feelings about this enough to like have a, an intelligent well you're in it right now i'm very you're much in it, in it. this yeah. isn't retrospective this piece you're in it yes right now yeah and a couple people have asked me and i i keep almost saying i can't talk about this yet because well, I, don't and know. I don't i get it but but i'm happy to try because mm. this is how i process my thoughts so it's good but i'm just sorry that everyone has to listen to my processed thoughts well no <laughs> my i think it's, it's really helpful for me to hear you say that you struggled with hating yourself at yeah. first because it that for whatever reason you it wasn't you weren't reacting in a way that you expected or that you yes. feel everyone told you that yes. you would right mm-hmm. i remember when we adopted my daughter and we found out that we weren't going to be able to bring her home mm-hmm. that was in nepal 10 years ago almost yeah. and i remember it was like a defense mechanism 
that I, I don't know if it was there already and I just turned it on or if I constructed it real fast. I don't know how that happened, but I do remember in my mind, and this is kind of a confession that I'm going to say inspired by what you were just talking about. I said to myself, I am not going to fall in love with this little girl. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to allow it Yeah. because I'm going to have to leave her here. Yeah. Like we can't bring her home. This yeah. isn't going to happen. And maybe she's never going to be, you know, living with us. Right. And in the, and it was like the process of like three or four days while we were there. And I think day four or day five, I didn't have a choice in, in, as much as I had this piece of me that was fighting it, I didn't have a choice. I completely fell mm-hmm. for this little girl. Yeah. And at that point, it was like, I, I don't care if we have to move here. Because mm-hmm. they were telling us, take her back to the orphanage. Yeah. And go home. Right. That's what, that is what the United States official stance was to us and the rest of the families that right. were there. And I held that little girl that night, and I—and that's when it dawned on me. I, that's not even an option for me. Right. But I fought it initially mm-hmm. because in, in order to protect myself. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because I knew that it was a devastating situation. Yep. And so I had that constructed. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> so, it was hard. so hard. <laughs> Terribly hard. Yeah. I've... I've I didn't, do you ever get to a point where you feel like you have no more to learn about yourself? Like you've done so much digging that you're like, I feel like I've reached the bottom. I get to the point where I don't want to dig anymore. Sure. (laughs) Well, that's how I felt before my journey into parenthood. And then we went to go pick up my son and, um, and I, for days I didn't sleep. I just shook. Mm. I was so scared. I was so anxious. Mm. I was so upset. And, and I just felt like it was never going to go away. It lasted for a week. I basically didn't sleep for a week. I just couldn't, I was crying constantly. And I just felt like, wow, I really have a lot more to learn about myself. (laughs) And it was, and even that was inspiring in that moment of like, well, the silver lining is that, you know, I've got a lot more depth that I need to explore and there's this a is going to really help me. Yeah, there's a that. lot more there. Yeah. I applaud you. I am I I just think that you're such a special unique person because of your maybe ability but even willingness to speak honestly about things. Like when I asked you the Thanks. difficult question before and mm-hmm. you said I don't know. Yeah. That was so good. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like sometimes that's all you can say. <laughs> so this would this would normally be the part that I didn't even, you know, this is like the part that I would say after the podcast was over, but I wanted to tell you <laughs> while we were still recording. <laughs> Wrap it up for me in a, in a bit of a formal way and just tell people where they can find you and know more about you. Yeah. Um, so I'm all over the internet. Mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> and uh, so I have my website, brookshaden.com, and mm-hmm. I'm on Instagram a lot. Um, my handle is just brookshaden. And um, yeah, I share a lot of a lot of content. You share a lot. Yeah, just a lot of heartfelt feelings and behind the scenes content and editing and um, all sorts of stuff. So thank you for joining me, Brooke. Thank you. It was great to see you. Oh, I just love you. <laughs>